Welcome to The Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Welcome, Vitalik, to the Defiant Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you very much, Camille. It's good to be here. Vitalik Buterin needs no introduction, but let's give you one anyways. Vitalik wrote the Ethereum white paper when he was just 19. His aim was simple yet comprehensive, to create a world computer that was designed to be a flexible base layer for all online applications without the need of any third party. Since its inception in 2015, Ethereum has become the most active and largest smart contracts platform. But has it achieved the world computer goal? Vitalik also explains the significance of the upcoming merge between Ethereum's proof-of-stake chain and its application layer. He walks us through the different stages of the process and provides guidance as to when it will happen. It's definitely succeeded at a lot of things. I think uh, it's definitely succeeded at just uh, kind of making all of the applications and even most of the applications that were described in the original white paper actually happen and uh, people actually yeah, being able to like use them and seeing what they would actually look like and um, a lot of them have quite a few people like uh, either playing around with them or using them for uh, just to do things that they really need the thing that it hasn't really accomplished too is like getting to the entire world right like there's and if the concept of uh, you know a world computer in the sense of like it's a computer that is kind of like access not like anyone from uh, in the world can look at and like just has like at least some basic ability to send programs into and, and uh, like not just read from it but also write to it and like if i think ethereum has done that there's also like this kind of more expansive meaning that I think a lot of people read into it, which is like the world only needs one computer now and it can be Ethereum. And mm. like that was never the intent, right? Of uh, like, I don't think Gavin was thinking about that at all when the term came up. But then there's also, I think, this uh, idea that's been in the project since the beginning that this is supposed to be a platform that is like really accessible to the world. And like, you know, not just in a theoretical way, but also in a very meaningful way where lots of people actually can and are accessing it and there aren't like big barriers uh, standing in the way. And I think there, like, there's definitely quite a bit of progress that has been made. And like, you know, about a month and a half ago, you know, I visited Argentina and I saw firsthand, like just the kinds of uh, diverse people that were using both Ethereum and other blockchains of different kinds to as just a regular part of uh, you know like just their lives and like and, and their businesses and uh, like their attempts to kind of say you know save money start projects like pay people and just do all kinds of normal things but at the same time like you know there are these high transaction fees there's all of these usability barriers uh, and there's all of these kind of problems that are um, uh, that are still left so if we want to kind of really fully achieve that vision i do still think that there's uh, Quite a lot of work still left to go. Obviously, work that we had hoped would be finished by by now, or even by like 2016 or so. But uh, like 
software, I guess, always takes longer to develop than people predicted. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, I, obviously, the sooner we can actually uh, get uh, get all of that work being done, the better and uh, the closer that Ethereum can come to actually kind of reaching this bigger part of its original vision. Yeah, I totally agree with with that view of Ethereum achieving its vision of becoming a world computer in in the sense that it really has achieved most of the applications that uh, you even listed in the original white paper. And I just went back and looked at, at, at those applications. So you had said Ethereum would be good for token systems, for derivatives and stable coins, for identity and reputation systems, decentralized file storage, DAOs, savings, insurance, decentralized data feeds, multi-sigs, cloud computing, gambling. I I guess that's maybe too much of gambling, Mm -hmm. prediction markets and decentralized exchanges. So maybe like some in in a greater extent than others, all of those applications are, are being built on top of Ethereum. But I think you're very right to say, and it's a fair assessment that well, it has become this infinitely uh, flexible platform for, for builders, it's not really accessible to everyone in, in the world as kind of you and all of the builders of Ethereum have hoped for. And that takes me kind of to my the, the next quest- question, which is the next phase of Ethereum, which is meant to achieve this scalability, right? The merge of the proof of stake consensus layer with the application layer currently on, on the proof of work chain. And of course, this is a huge undertaking. I don't know if, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but it hasn't really ever been tried before, right? To kind of splice blockchains and piece them together and to make mm-hmm. a new blockchain. Super complicated stuff. And of course, that's why it's taken years to get to the stage when, where we're finally, I guess, very close to seeing that happen. I mean, the, the whole point of this is to allow Ethereum to scale and in, while also increasing decentralization. So what's missing? What are the steps missing for, for the merge to happen? I'm sure you get this question so much, but it was like the main thing that people wanted me to ask you. So I'll start with this one. I mean, I think at this point, it basically is testing, right? Like at, at this point, um, you know, there are already some like basic test sets and like full implementations of uh like everything that needs to happen for the merge. Like there's uh, implementations of the consensus clients. There was uh, implementations of the, like what we call execution clients now. So like the Geth and Nethermind are the, like, the bigger ones. And uh, Peter Salagi, the lead uh, Geth dev of uh, Geth, I just like tweeted out a few days ago that like Geth is basically one PR away from being ready for the merge, right? So like PR means pull request. It's just basically a big piece of code that gets kind of suggested to be added to the Geth project, and then it'll actually be yeah, added and included at some point uh, fairly soon. The but obviously like there, there's still quite a bit of testing left to go. The piece that has seen like the least testing and where there's still some finishing touches uh, being done on right now is the like in what we call the initial sync process. So this is like when a node joins the network for the first time, then like how do they yeah, like de- basically download the kind of what the existing states, so like what the existing like account balances, contract code, and all of those things are so that they can then kind of be part of the network and uh, go from there. And there's just like some subtleties and kind of the, the interaction between, you know, how the proof, the formerly proof of work side does it and how the proof of stake side does it. So like a bunch of technical stuff there, though also huge amounts of progress being made on it. So I think generally people are 
feeling very good about the merge right now. It's just uh, you know, a bunch of technical work, a bunch of testing, a bunch more testing. And uh, you know, hopefully we're going to be merging pretty soon. Okay, obviously the, the big question is when do you think that that'll happen? Some people are saying June, some people say, uh, saying July or August, I don't know. So, okay, so when once this happens, of course, it's not like devs can just pack up their bags and, and go mm. home, right? This is kind of mm. the first step of a multi-year and very complex process. So mm-hmm. can, you, can you summarize kind of the different stages that will happen post-merge until you, you, you think, okay, Ethereum is finally complete? Or I don't know if like, you, you would ever be able to say that Ethereum is complete, but at least complete in, in this vision of it. Mm-hmm. I guess the closest thing uh, we have to that is uh, like summarized in that uh, diagram, the the roadmap diagram that I tweeted out back in mm-hmm. December. This was the one that talked about you know, the five buckets that uh, at least like I used to organize um, what was uh, left to be done, where you had the merge, which was uh, basically proof of stake, the surge, which is uh, increasing ca- the capacity of the chain, basically doing sharding and uh, doing a little bit more stuff before that and, and some more stuff after that. Then there is the Verge, which is uh, vertical trees, which are basically a technology that makes it easier to validate the chain. So like nodes don't have to kind of be so heavy and require like as big computers as before. Then there's the Purge, which is making the chain uh, kind of lighter and making the code lighter by not requiring like every node in the network to process and store all of the old history. And then there is like the Splurge, which is just everything else. <laughs> and there's you know there's a lot of different buckets there right like there's like upgrades to the EVM there's proposer builder separation and there's like this uh, fairly long and like a list of uh, just various miscellaneous kind of uh, buzzwords and just fun items of uh, different kinds and then like there's longer term things like zk snarks which are going to be probably everywhere in the Ethereum protocol five or ten years from now. Like that list of uh, things, right? Like just switch to proof of stake, add sharding. So we have some scaling, make sure we have good rollups that are actually taking advantage of the sharding, you know, make it easier for people to run nodes, make sure that we don't like centralize as a result of MEV and those kinds of issues. Try to make the protocol less complex instead of uh, more complex over time. And then, you know, make the yeah, EVM better. Like I think if we do all of those and we just do the things that we know that we have, that, that we have to do today then like ethereum is in a place where if nothing else is uh, done even like even after that then like we're already in a great place right now i think uh, if all we manage to do is uh, proof of stake and charting then i think we're then i think we're still in a good place so you know there is a sense in which it's like you know there's basic things that we can do and then there's like extras and then there's like extra extras and the more extras we can do in some ways the the better pro- the a protocol ethereum becomes and even the simpler a protocol ethereum becomes so like there's this trade-off where kind of if we're willing to accept more temporary complexity in the development process then we might get out like more long-term complexity in the yeah, protocol design but like if those don't get done, then like that's also fine, right? And so like there there is value in trying to also kind of solidify as many parts of the protocol as soon as we can, just so that people can get to feel safe and know like hey, you know, this is actually how it it is going to work for the long term. Right. Okay. So basically, you have a set of of must haves and a set of like nice to haves in in this entire roadmap. And is it fair to say the must haves are a proof of stake? 
and sharding and then mm -hmm. all the rest is kind of okay would be good to have. I think so yeah okay and when when sharding is is working and there are uh, roll-ups uh, to uh, further increase scalability do you think that at this stage ethereum would be able to be the single kind of transaction or or single uh, settlement layer for finance for for the internet or or for like global economic activity i should say is i like... think it'll definitely be big enough to be able to do that okay i mean there's obviously the question of like will will everyone be willing to move all of their activity onto the same blockchain or even any blockchain but just from a pure like just can it hold handle the transactions point of view it's totally be able to oh amazing and would that be the kind of most desirable outcome for you that's a good question well, well like what would a yeah, long-term desirable outcome be i guess aside from just like are people using ethereum there is also the question of like how are people using ethereum and like are we actually yeah like are people actually getting benefits from uh, stuff being on the blockchain instead of uh, stuff being done in some other way so like you know like for example there's like a lot of projects that like were, were start started off making kind of their like private blockchains and that stuff basically just turned into like let's uh basically creating centralized systems that might have like a couple of extra signatures and a couple of extra hashes at a few places but like users never actually see and never actually really get any like real sec security or autonomy or kind of privacy or any kind of benefit from that so i think once ethereum becomes mainstream then i mean like i personally will definitely like start uh, like uh, caring much less about like oh you know is 30 percent of the world on ethereum or 10 percent of the world on ethereum and much more like is you know, like what actual value like is Ethereum through these applications bringing, and like that's something that I think is uh, definitely really important to think about the, um, now as well. I just think mm -hmm. like you know the bigger Ethereum I gets, the kind of the even more important uh, it becomes to uh, keep thinking about that issue too. That's a fair point. So for you, like the most desirable outcome for Ethereum comes not through looking at the the amount of people or like the percentage of the world that's using ethereum but what are they using it for so what would you want to see people using ethereum for so some of the things that i think uh, like people are using ethereum for already that i think are like personally think are valuable one is obviously just the currency use case right i think uh, a lot of people do have needs that are just like paying people moving money between countries just like savings and well, just ETH by itself provides a lot of that. But then there's obviously a lot of people too who like don't want to handle that much volatility. And so like stable coins, like whether it's things like USDC or whether it's like the more decentralized ones like, like uh, Dai and Rai, I think uh, like they provide a lot of that for people already. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Another would be like DAOs, like uh, DAOs are being uh, used to just... Like being, especially being used to pull capital for, uh, together, together to kind of do actually interesting and meaningful things. Mm. So, like City DAO is one of my yeah, favorites. Like a, a DAO that's actually trying to like basically go through the yeah, wild made DAO law and like illegally own and uh, govern a, a new city. There is uh, a Vita DAO which is funding a life extension research. Um, I guess the one that kind of got big yesterday was Assange DAO that was uh, funding, I guess, legal defense for Julian Assange. And it looks like it's been getting a lot of money, so it might even end up uh, branching out beyond that. I guess that's uh, 
you know, it depends what the what the community decides it's going to be. I mean, Constitution DAO, I think, is like an interesting experiment. Like it was, I mean, like I don't think you know there's much kind of direct social value that comes out of like literally like just owning a piece of the Constitution, but like just as a demonstration of like you know, hey, like the crypto community can kind of get out there and kind of like basically you know outcompete Wall Street uh, moguls and like you know, like win and own big and important things is, um, I think, like it was valuable as a demonstration. And I think, um, you know, they, like ho- hopefully can give momentum to things like City Down and all of these uh, other experiments that could be yeah, really interesting. So DAOs, I, yeah, you know, definitely want to see more DAOs of different kinds and DAOs being used to like, help people do things that uh, they would not other- otherwise uh, be able to do. Prediction markets. I have, uh, I've been a fan of prediction markets for a long time. Just the, you know, the idea of using economic incentives to actually yeah, like encourage people to make predictions that are uh, as uh, as accurate as they can, right? It's uh, like one of the big problems right now with like just um, you know, like listening to the media as it exists today, right? Is that like people have these kind of, like these kind of, like pressures and kind of desires in the moments to make these uh, you know really co- confident statements that make them like sound like i'm um, you know this sort of really impressive alpha reporter that knows their stuff but like when six weeks later it turns out to be complete bullshit like people don't really remember and like prediction markets i think are just like one really valuable experiment in seeing like can we uh, create something better and create like just a tool to help people understand like what's more likely and less likely to happen in the future that's uh, more likely to just to give numbers that are actually sane and just not completely crazy. ENS, I have uh, always been a fan of. I, like the concept of having names that are not owned by like any one uh, company, like whether it's uh, the traditional DNS system or whether it's Google or Facebook or kind of any existing company, like a name that you can actually own and uh, trust that you know it is uh, going to be yours and it doesn't like depend on any authorities to be able to continue to exist. I think it's. Uh, it's obviously been finding a lot of use within the Ethereum ecosystem, right? Like, I mean, like if someone wants to send me ETH for whatever reason, which like I don't totally don't need any more of, but like if people wanted to, right, then like they could just type in Vitalik.eth in like their Ethereum wallet and it would just like resolve to my yeah, address automatically, right? And like that's powerful and that's really useful, but like it's also useful in a lot of other cases, right? So like there's a chat applications where that like that just is like what your username is. There's uh, a bunch more things like that. Sign in with Ethereum. Um, this is uh, this kind of movement that's been growing the last half year, like actually being able to use your Ethereum accounts like to log into things. And as like basically as your kind of web identity and like directly competing with, um, you know, Google identity and Twitter identity and Facebook identity. I think like sign in with Ethereum is a really powerful like, tool because of how it like really composes with a lot of other things, right? Because like when people use sign in with Google, for example, like they're they're often not just looking for you know is this the same account that like signed into this account that like created this profile the first time, right? They're looking for like often anti spam, like they don't want people to be able to make like a hundred thousand accounts and uh, you know use them to make fake posts or like like fake upvotes for a whole bunch of things. And like Google, like basically, like they have like this kind of like very weak form of KYC, right? That just is. So it does make it like you can like get two or five accounts, but it's hard to get a hundred thousand accounts. 
And that sort of thing is something that the Ethereum, like Ethereum ecosystem can provide as well, right? Like, it's hard to get 100,000 accounts that have an ENS name because like, that's just really expensive to do. It's hard to get 100,000 proof of humanity profiles. It's hard to get 100,000 popes. By the way, when I say Pope, I mean like proof oh, of attendance yeah. protocol tokens. I don't mean <laughs> like, you know, 100,000 leaders of Catholicism. That would be really nice to have that too. But yeah, no. So like the, like just, like I, I just think the sign in with Ethereum thing is a good example of how like all of the different applications can start kind of like really coming together and building on top of each other. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's really yeah, good and valuable too. Some of the like privacy preserving decentralized voting stuff, like there's CLR funds would be one example. There's like a bunch of these kind of quiet experiments. Um, so far, they haven't really gotten too far, um, but it's like, I think also a good use case of like blockchains combined with some of the you know, like privacy preserving zero knowledge stuff to like basically make better governance tools. There's like this big list of like, what I think are uh, actually interesting things that are happening more and more in Ethereum land, right? And they think, uh, like, if we had more things like that, right? Like, if we had more, like, even more ability for people to, you know, just to use cryptocurrency internationally or, like, use DAOs to organize, like, whether it's businesses or whether it's, uh, like, new cities or local like projects, like whether it's a nonprofit or not nonprofits or activism or like funding, you know, scientific research or whatever else. I think that would be really amazing to have. I mean, the other one I think like I, I didn't mention, but it's like this really interesting uh, double-edged sword, of course, is NFTs, right? And because mm-hmm. like it's fascinating in how they just both end up like funding completely crazy stuff and just creating these embarrassing multi-million dollar splats on the internet. But also, you know, NFTs have funded a lot of really important things. And, um, you know, they've, they funded science research, they funded activism, they funded artists, they funded writers. And I think uh, all of that stuff is uh, really important too. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you know, like those kinds of things I think are growing. And I mm-hmm. think uh, like being able to create applications that are like, actually meaningful and valuable and also that have like that kind of factor of like getting DGENs excited is uh, something that um, I think would be really cool to see more of. And, you know, I, I hope like somehow the Ethereum ecosystem can figure more of that stuff out. I think it's, it's very notable that all the things that you mentioned are actually already happening on Ethereum because like we could have had this conversation you know, back even in, in 2017, mm-hmm. when there was like an, a, a lot of activity on, on Ethereum and a lot of speculation, but a lot of it was actually just speculation. And I, yeah, mm-hmm. like fundraising is a use case, but that was pretty much it. But now you mentioned all these things, uh, currency with and like uh, cross-border transfers and remittances with stable coins, DAOs, prediction markets, like DNS, sign-ins, like NFTs, like all these things are, are actually happening. So mm-hmm. even if like some are 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 smaller or just getting started, at least there. I, I think it's 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 very encouraging to see all these use cases, you know, actually mm-hmm. working uh, at the moment. So okay, so to to have all of this activity on on Ethereum, I mean, going back to kind of the 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 previous questions of you know, everything that needs to happen for Ethereum to scale and support all of this wild demand for, for a block space to support all of these use cases, you know, someone might think, why not just increase 
Ethereum block size. And, you know, just like have have this kind of switch and just like instantly uh, scale it. Like, and I guess like the, a way to summarize that thought is just like, why does uh, decentralization matter? And mm-hmm. I wanted to connect this question with your recent trip to Argentina that you mentioned, because there has been a lot of... Uh, like increased adoption of crypto in Argentina. But I heard you say in, in an interview, and I think Santi mentioned this uh, to me as well, that a lot of it is happening on, on centralized exchanges. So yeah, like why, why is decentralization important? And how, how do you kind of balance the fact that like for, for, for builders and people kind of inside the space, it's for, for many of us, it's clear why that is, but for the end user, it sometimes isn't. Right. I mean, I think um, you know, decentralization is uh, one of those things that's like difficult to understand why it's important until suddenly it becomes uh, really obvious why it's important. Right. I think it's uh, like the most important thing is just like being able to like build on a platform and an ecosystem where like you know it's not you know just going to go in some completely different uh, direction that like breaks everything um, er- everything that you were trying to uh, build on top of it like just uh, because it's uh, you know in some small group group of people's interests right or even just because like some group of people get lazy and decide to like stop maintaining something that they were maintaining so like from de- decentralization um being about long-term stability of is uh, i think something that's uh, really important also it, like especially decentralization as a long-term stability, even in the the face of like often very strong incentives, right? Like there's uh, a lot of these examples of like you know people building on top of uh, like Twitter or Facebook, and then like, and they like, built entire businesses around the APIs of these companies, and then suddenly the API like the the companies themselves decided that like oh you know they they'll shut down their those APIs like just because they uh, often like wants to release their own competitor or like just for whatever other not very good reason um, and like these people's life's work just ends up being uh, like kind of completely destroyed right and like even if that doesn't uh, happen then like when these things become like very single like these single central points of failure then often there end up being these other forces that end up like that, that end up leaning on them right and one of the challenges when you start having like lots of these centralized intermediaries is that there's a lot of people in the world who want like lots of different uh, kinds of groups of people to just not be able to transact not be able to kind of live regular economic lives and like this group of people is like much larger than any group of people that uh, that like they would dare like actually write a law, write a law making it illegal right like the set of things that's censored is much is much much bigger than the set of things that's illegal there's a uh, like these off there's a lot of legal like very legal industries like whether it's uh, like political activism or like you know sex industry or psychedelics that end up getting at, uh, end up getting targeted um often through these kind of very non-transparent and very non-democratic uh, channels where they just like lean on a couple of people that are high up in the middle of some payment processor people in all kinds of countries like often um, centralized companies would just decide to like not serve entire countries because they just decide that you know that entire country is like too much of a money laundering risk or whatever and like that's like something that ends up you know like like 
hurting and like excluding often hundreds of millions of people, right? I mean, I was born in one of these uh, countries that gets kind of, you know, discriminated against in this way quite a bit. So, you know, if you're on a uh, decentralized system, then like, you know, you know that like you're not going to like be singled out and singled out in that way, like just because like either who you are or even something like vague, like, or just because who you are ends up like vaguely falling in, falling into something like somewhere beside a category that like someone somewhere de- decides that they don't like. So I think kind of creating this kind of counter pressure against what I think would like very easily yeah, emerge if, every, if, if just everything depended on centralization, where there's like five different people in between every transaction. And if you just lean on any one of the five hard enough, then like, you, you know, people can just lose their ability to transact is uh, something that's important. Mm-hmm. And like, even in the uh, absence of uh, that kind of pressure, I think uh, just creating things where you know that you th- they will keep existing in the same form five years from now is something that a lot of people just like underrate and that I think are like really valuable, right? So like if you look at like web pages, for example, right? Like the Internet Archive, I think makes life a lot like a lot easier for people because like sometimes, uh, you know, someone wrote something and then that that thing that someone wrote becomes really important and everyone starts focusing, starts kind of building on top of it. And then for whatever reason, it could even be that like their hosting provider like just went out of business or like some totally stupid reason. That page is not accessible to 10 or 15 years in the future, right? And like because you have to, like often the links break, which which is really sad. And I think like more decentralization and th- like th- like not necessarily blockchains, but things like IPFS could actually fix. But like, you know, you have the Internet Archive and at least like you can go and look in you and like you can find something that existed like 10 or 15 years ago, right? But like, where is the internet archive for like programs right like what if i want to you know build some financial thing and i want to build my financial thing on top of uniswap because my financial thing needs just like some ability to trade tokens around then like it, i would feel much easier if i knew that uniswap would actually exist like five years from now or 10 years from now right because otherwise like for every single dependency that i add i'm basically taking on the responsibility that like oh they might decide to like change or disappear, and then I'll have to scramble and, fig- and figure out some new thing to go and replace it with. And that's something that I think is like important for applications. It's definitely important for applications that are um, building on top of uh, other applications. So, I guess uh, to summarize, like there's there, there, like there are there are different reasons why I think like de- decentralization can be important for different people and. I think uh, I do think that all of them are valuable. Um, I think uh, like decentralization and is more valuable the closer you are to like doing something where you really need to like, be sure that the thing that you're doing will continue to be possible to do two years or five or five years from now. Like if it's the sort of thing where you can just like look, you're just doing like some one-time thing, and if it stops working, you can switch to doing a different thing tomorrow. Then like. You know, you don't actually necessarily need much decentralization. Like maybe you just need competition, and you could say competition is actually a kind of decentralization. But it's still, but you know, if on the other hand, like you you are doing something where like, you need to commit to it for a long time, and especially if, but like not only, but especially if you know that it's the sort of thing where there where like powerful interests might want it to not uh, to to not exist, then um, decentralization is useful for you. 
but also if you're doing something across a large community where it's difficult for you to agree on like exactly which centralized um, authorities should be trusted that's uh, also yeah a place where decentralization becomes more and more important one of the fundamental goals of web3 is for crypto and blockchains to add a value layer to the internet and place power and ownerships on the hands of individual users and not on a few tech giants. Ethereum is poised to be at the core of this new phase of the web. But does everything need to be decentralized? We also discuss why decentralization matters anyways and whether the user experience of Web3 could ever be the core appeal of decentralized apps beyond censorship resistance. This podcast is sponsored by Sirion. Sirion is mission control for Web3, giving users the ability to trade DeFi tokens, transfer assets across chains, and show off their NFT collections all in one place. Sirion offers a multi-chain experience with asset tracking and trading across seven networks, including Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and BSC. So you'll never miss an opportunity waiting on gas fees to drop. NFT owners can also see their favorite collectibles and art widgets on their iPhones or Apple Watches and send them to friends and family in a few clicks. Users can explore every corner of the metaverse with Sirion from their web, desktop, and mobile apps. Head to Sirion.io to connect your wallet and get started today. There's definitely lots of applications that uh, don't need decentralization. There's also a lot of applications that I think uh, like could use partial decentralization, mm. but like probably don't need to, a kind of like very purist approach of like no servers. We do everything on like um, IPFS and on chains. Um, so social media might even be like a good example of that, right? Like I think there could be a, a lot of benefit from creating some kind of social media ecosystem where if I make a post, then like that posts ongoing existence, like, you know, does not depend on like, one single company deciding that it should uh, uh, continue existing and kind of the post and the hash of, a, of that post you know, just lives on its own and other people can link to it. Other people can like it. Other people can like retweet it. And you would have like these different and often like centralized algorithms and interfaces for interacting with that content. And uh, that, uh, and that's fine, but like because they yeah, don't kind of control the content to the same extent, it would be easier to move between them. Like I think that kind of vision is uh, valuable, right? And mm-hmm. but like there to get the value, like you don't really need to go to like one hundred percent decentralization, right? Like there's a lot of value that you can gain from you know twenty percent decentralization or forty uh, percent decentralization, and I think that's totally fine. Another example f- might be like. Uh, websites for booking flights for example right mm-hmm. like because uh, like the thing that you're ultimately buying is like still a yeah, centralized thing like it's it's a promise from a particular company to give you a seat and if like one of the platforms for doing this breaks like or decides to censor you you can just like go on the three or four other ones anyway right mm-hmm. and like there's well there's even more than three or four of them at this point so like things like that, when you're just like interacting with some with like something kind of one time, like yeah, often decentralization is not really needed, right? For thing like if you're the sort of person where you're not like the things that you're doing kind of follow along like very established patterns that are very similar to what plenty of other people are doing, and that that kind of have a lot of mainstream support, and your entire life is like that, then like you might not benefit from decentralization that much, right? But I mean, even there, like, you know, you could make the case that, like, you should 
you know, get an ENS name and like start setting up your profile, like kind of just in case that's something you want in the future. Or, you know, you should put like, you know, at least a couple percent of your money in cryptocurrency, like just in case something happens to your um, to your local fiat currency. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that like don't really have some, you know, burning need to start uh, where where there's just this large value that they get from like kind of blockchainifying their lives. And then there's other people for whom blockchains are like their lifeline today. And I think there's an entire spectrum in the middle. And I think that's fine. I mean, do you think there's a case to be made for blockchain and Web3 to be used, not because of its kind of censorship resistance properties, but just because it's it's better, like it, it just like it's easier, it works better. For example, like for me, like logging into or like not logging in, but like just like interacting with with DeFi applications. For me, that that's just better than having to have a password and email and you know login code for like every different mm-hmm. Web two application. Mm-hmm. I I could see kind of like having this integrated value layer on the internet being just better than having this kind of separate financial system that is also segmented by geography. And that's like a lot clunkier than to transact online in a way that's not natively online. You know, so I I think, I don't know, do do you think there's a case to be made that maybe Web3 is just better, even if some people don't don't require the decentralization Mm -hmm. aspect? Yeah, I think... uh... For international money transfer, uh, crypto is often already better than the banking system. I actually uh, even had to deal with this uh, like fairly recently, trying to send money to a yeah, friend who had a bank account that was just like it was just with a one of the smaller banks that like you can't easily like route things directly to, and so you have to use like some corresponding banking thing and. Like I ended up like figuring out how to make a banking transfer so it would get there from my Singapore bank account, but it was really complicated. Mm-hmm. When I did it, I wasn't even sure that I was doing it correctly, and what it ended up taking something like two weeks to arrive, and like mm-hmm. the, the, that entire process was fairly stressful. And so I basically told them like, "Hey, hey, you know, can you please like set up a channel to accept so like at least USDC or like Dai or something else?" So. There definitely are lots, like for me personally, like uh, even just as someone who like, you know, like donates to charities like quite a bit, for example, like crypto mm-hmm. is a vastly better channel than anything in the banking system, despite having, you know, no need for um, censorship resistance. Now, I mean, you could obviously argue that like in some ways it's still benefiting from kind of censorship resistance and or something like censorship resistance indirectly because kind of traditional finance is just inherently relies on all of these uh, intermediaries and different intermediaries uh, um, that are based in different countries and that adds kind of, like some inherent friction and just the way that crypto works is like much more based around ignoring all of that like it just gets efficiencies that are really valuable even just for these kind of very fairly simple and boring use cases but you know still that was uh, definitely really valuable international yeah internet like payments in general i guess uh, like there's a lot of use cases that aren't so much being actively discriminated against by the financial system as much as like they're just not being served because like the people in these systems are kind of like it's complicated and hard to fix it from within the context of the existing system and there's not much of an incentive to do it. For like accounts and uh, Web3, I think uh, 
Like, I'm definitely very bullish on the yeah, signing with Ethereum thing. I actually think that, like, accounts are this one centralized thing where, like, there is this kind of theoretical argument that people make, right? That, like, oh, users are not good enough, like, very good at maintaining their own passwords, and users are going to uh, forget their passwords or their passwords are going to get stolen. And so, you know, you need the friendly big brother to be able to, like, recover your account if, ever, if anything goes wrong, right? And, like, this is the sort of standard argument for why, like, Google and accounts, Facebook accounts, and all these things have their value. But the problem with this theoretical argument is that it doesn't actually match people's life, like a lot of people's life experience, right? Like, even like right now for me two days ago, like my Amazon accounts just got suspended because like their AI suspected fraud of some kind when I was just like trying to buy a new phone. And I like just don't really have a good like a, a good way of getting it back and that's been inconvenient for me like mm. i've known friends who uh, just lose their like google accounts forget their password and they contact support and they just like can't get it recovered at all so like these kind of friendly big brothers that are supposed to help you recover everything it, they're they're surprisingly negligent a lot of the time and like i think web sign in with with ethereum uh, plus like kind of better wallet technology, so things like social recovery wallets, I think actually right. definitely could create a much better product for a lot of people. So like that would also be one good example, right, of this kind of like not full decentralization, but partial decentralization, right? Like you could still have centralized accounts and centralized websites, but, you know, you can use your Ethereum account to sign into them. And I think like that's also definitely a really yeah, valuable use case. Um, I mean, I like I definitely do think that things like sign in with Ethereum are going to be especially valuable to people who you know having a hard time like get, getting a, a yeah, phone number for uh, for whatever reason right and like a lot of these systems like they yeah, you know so, like sometimes these phone number verifiers work well in like the big mainstream countries but they end up like not working well at all in like the the smaller countries that people forget to think about so like i do think that you're if you're the sort of person that like depends on censorship resistance or kind of depends on this kind of like global accessibility that comes from decentralization more then it's even more valuable but it is one of those things that definitely has like at least some value for everyone um so yeah, yeah i mean i think it's uh it's different in different places yeah no totally agree so okay so increased adoption for for crypto is coming from uh, grassroots communities and like private from the private private sector like you saw in Argentina and like you know we're seeing even in the US and in other places and in other countries it's coming from more of the top down right like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as as legal tender and other countries evaluating whether to issue CBDCs uh, like India made an announcement recently so where do you think the kind of major or like biggest wave of crypto adoption will come from in the future like will it come from kind of these like grassroots adoptions and like private sector or from like top-down governments in like adopting crypto for their own national currency i'm definitely these, like two things like interact also like if, mm. if like yeah mm -hmm. i'm definitely expecting the grassroots uh, stuff to be more effective like i think uh We have even seen this year, like with uh, things like the the .eth names, like for example, like that just kind of spread out all like all the way across Twitter, and there's plenty of people who um, have those names. Like NFTs have kind of spread very widely um, all on their own. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, 
like blockchain applications that just kind of like find that niche and find that like way of uh, both having value and being able to like really express and present that value to a lot of people like can uh, very easily break out. Um, and and I could easily see that happening in more cases, right? Like I could see even just like sign in with Ethereum, for example, kind of helping to lead this kind of big wave of uh, you know Ethereum as an um, as an identity, uh, kind of like taking off and being used much more. I think, uh, like, obviously, yeah, like, cryptocurrency by itself is something that, like, I don't really necessarily think we need big coordinated efforts. Um, I think we need, like, people will just, uh, if they yeah, find it valuable, they'll find a way to use it. And mm-hmm. it's uh, going to just uh, keep growing organically over time. I do think that, like, there can be a value in coordinated efforts, like, the, the kind that, like, you know, create a local district where, like, all the shops accept, uh, like, Bitcoin or ETH or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And what that's v- valuable as a kind of community thing of, like, you know, saying, hey, this district is kind of now the crypto-heavy district, and so people that are, like, enthusiastic about crypto things are more likely to all move there, and that can create these kind of interesting networks. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and like I, I do think things like that can actually be valuable. It's It's kind of like creating a city, but it's, like, a much lighter version of that, right? But there's you know other ways of uh, of doing that as well, and I yeah I know I hope we yeah kind of experiment with all the approaches. There is uh, what else? Like the whole like, kind of crypto gaming thing is uh, another one that's I think trying to find its niche, and like there is a big chance it just breaks out into something fairly successful at some point soon. Hmm. Um, so like I think there's plenty of yeah well. Play to earn or even just like, I don't know. I mean, I think there's like different ways, like hundreds of different models. And like any, if any one of them becomes really successful, I think it could be successful. I think the, like the big challenge with uh, institutional adoption that, well, I guess the, the value that institutional adoption could provide is that it can like really reduce friction and make it easier for the yeah, organic adoption to happen. But institutional adoption by itself, when there isn't an organic will, I think is something that can just kind of very easily kind of just sputter out and stall, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've, there's a lot of cases of these big companies that started accepting crypto for payments with a lot of fanfare. And then mm-hmm. like a couple of years later, they realized that like, wait, we only have like 45 customers that actually use that <laughs> option. Yeah, so I think it's uh, different in uh, different cases. In the case of like, El- countries like El Salvador just like making it outright mandatory. That's definitely something where you know I'm more definitely more skeptical and more concerned. Like just uh, because like when you like not even just like make an institutional push, but even like start forcing people to accept it, then like you're pushing a technology on people who don't really care much about it and are basically are not even given the option to kind of pass by it, right? And uh, and not really care. Exposing people in that way to um, in kind of large numbers to something that they don't understand well, like there's just so many ways in which that can end up going wrong and like that can end up just leading to people, you know, losing money or getting scammed or even mm-hmm. just getting disillusioned, right? Like people end up even like thinking that like, oh, you know, cryptocurrency equals like this thing that this nasty that these nasty right wing people want to push, or like this thing that like these nasty you know like whatever political tribe is uh, kind of running a country that wants to push crypto at that time um wants to mm. push, and so it could even uh, end up having some negative effects on uh, adoption in the long term. But like there are 
mean, I think the, like, the, there are good things that can happen, too. Like, I think Wyoming's uh, DAO law is an excellent example of uh, government level of uh, crypto supportiveness, right? Like, they just created this law that allows DAOs to be incorporated entities and legally owned stuff. There's just lots of people that are building on top of that. Like, City DAO is building on top of that. A lot of projects are building on top of that. So, that is uh, something that... Like it, definitely an example of a yeah, good model that I would hope mm. for people to be following more. I mean, Miami, I think, is like interesting. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, it definitely really helps that uh, like they have this like Francis Suarez, a mayor who is like really enthusiastic about just like being like tech positive and uh, pushing all of those things forward. There and you know, there's like, Miami Coin, and then there's like more and more of these local uh, kind of crypto things happening. So. Would definitely be lovely to see if any of those experiments end up turning out well. So, yeah, I mean, I think like there's like there's great ways for institutions to kind of have a uh, mutually beneficial relationship with the crypto space. There's like good ways, there's okay ways, and then there's there are also ways that like do risk being really counterproductive. Yeah, I think that's a really fair take. So it's like genuine adoption comes from grassroots, just like individuals and groups of people and communities wanting to use crypto. And then institutions can help that by, you know, encouraging it, making it, establishing kind of the infrastructure or investing in, in, in startups or just like making a regulatory framework that encourages innovation and, and so on. So it's like institutions can help this grassroots adoptions by, by just like helping it thrive. But then the, the, there's the wrong way to do it, which is just like pushing crypto on people, basically kind of the summary. Crypto's exceptional growth and adoption in the past year has placed it under the spotlight of US lawmakers and politicians, and the potential for unfriendly regulation has been casting an even darker shadow than usual over the sector. Vitalik comments on the effects of regulatory uncertainty and how a hard line from the US would impact crypto. Have you heard of Oasis Network? Oasis is a scalable, privacy-enabled blockchain that surpassed $100 million in TVL within 12 hours from launch. They recently announced a $200 million ecosystem fund dedicated to helping projects build on the network and is supported by investors including Pantera, Binance Labs, Dragonfly, and Electric Capital. It's one of the two most invested in blockchains, according to Messari, and has a partner ecosystem that includes Fortune 500 companies. Oasis aims to be a hub for DeFi with its lower gas fees versus Ethereum, high throughput, privacy protection, and defense against MEV. The Wormhole Bridge and the new Yuzu Swap Dex are both live on Oasis. Through Yuzu Swap, users can participate in liquidity pools, swap, trade, and earn rewards with high APY. Visit oasisprotocol.org and yuzuswap.com to learn more. I think if the U.S. takes a very hardline approach, like it would, it would definitely be difficult for like a lot of like very important crypto things to be done in the U.S. But it would definitely still continue in full force um, outside of the U.S. I think. But like um, a world where lots of countries uh, like ban crypto and try really hard to ban crypto is definitely a, a world which where in which it's like m- much harder for crypto and like especially and if good things um, being built on top of uh, crypto. And like attempts to connect it to the kind of existing world more uh, to uh, prosper. Um, I think uh, one of the kind of tragedies that 
the current regulatory status quo risks uh, falling into is this kind of problem that like you might call um, anarcho-tyranny, right? So like mm-hmm. anarcho-tyranny is, um, I mean, it's this kind of political buzzword that people have been using. I forget exactly who coined it, but it's been around for like 50 years, but it's basically the idea of like this state of government that has like, it's, it's basically like, in anarchy in the bad sense toward people who are doing bad stuff, but then it's a tyranny toward people who are trying to do meaningful stuff. So like sometimes like San Francisco even gets described in this way, right? Like it's uh, you know, very tolerant toward even like people who are trying to like steal food, like steal things from like stores to the point where they often have to like add like extra, like put everything behind locks and even like close their hours. But then like, if you want to open a new restaurant, well, you know, good luck going through like a hundred thousand dollars of permits. Right. Mm. And like, that's backwards, right? Like, you know, we, like we want the robbers, not the restaurants to have to go through like a hundred thousands of thousands of dollars of permits. And mm. hopefully the robbers never get them. But uh, like the, the analog in the crypto space, right. Is like, if we look at just like fundraising, for example, right. The problem there is that, or what happens a lot of the time is that we have projects where in order to comply with securities laws, those projects end up explicitly saying, this is a token that has no value. We are not connected to it in any way. We make Mm -hmm. no promises. Mm -hmm. And if you're buying it, like you're basically giving us a donation, right? So the legal structure that bans like basically this large category of things without like going through this registration process that's like basically like real not realistically possible for crypto projects ends up pushing a lot of projects into these alternative structures where they end up either like basically not being open to the public at all and only being open to like this a very limited set of investors and basically you have this kind of situation where um you know the rich people get in at the t- um at the um at the front and then the thing opens up to the public and the public can only buy in when it's only, when like it's only at an all time high, and then the and then the public's the one that gets that gets fleeced anyway. But just a bit later, or they create these structures where like basically the public instead of uh, buying into something where they have actual kind of like, like assurances of something, they're basically buying into something where they have no assurances at all except the yeah, developers' goodwill, right? Mm-hmm. And so. It's like, oh, you know, people like Uniswap in these like honest, like very well-meaning DeFi projects are getting subpoenas and have to spend huge amounts of money on lawyers. But then, you know, we have like outright criminals that are stealing millions of dollars that are just roaming free, right? And I feel like if it was the opposite, right? Like if, you know, the DeFi projects did not have to deal with so much of this regulatory stuff, but at the same time, there was more work going into like... um going after all these multi-million dollar thefts like that feels like that would be a world that's better for everyone right but like the challenge is that the like the reason why anarcho tyrannies happen is that they're just easy right because if you want to do something meaningful then you have to kind of like in some sense you have to make yourself vulnerable you have to have a presence you have to like do things that require long-term plans you have to have a team and so, like doing meaningful and valuable things makes you more vulnerable than just like doing the, uh, uh, totally destructive things. And so, mm-hmm. if you have this kind of like basically the, the trap that's often very easy to fall into is a trap that's kind of harder against the fir- against the first thing than against the second thing. And like that is, like I think a real risk that I do see a lot of regulatory regimes falling into that of like basically being like 
creating more barriers in the uh, face of meaningful things than in the in the face of uh, like things like uh, these thefts and scams that like realistically nobody wants uh, nobody wants to see existing like how to kind of create something like basically i think that there just is a yeah i need to create the create and agree on like some kind of of uh of structures that like just satisfy enough of uh, regulators concerns and that the yeah, crypto community is uh, will is willing to participate in so that they actually can be a better alternative and like what those might look like it's uh i mean like this, this is a hard problem, right? Like the reason why it hasn't been solved yet, I think, is that it's a hard problem. But it's, uh, like, yeah. But I mean, I do think it's something that's like worth more people kind of um, thinking about and looking into. Hundred percent. It's so it's so ironic because it's like regulators criticize crypto about being a wild west, but it's because they are making it a wild west. Like they're just like refusing to properly regulate it, and by not addressing the problem. And just like not creating any structure around it, the projects are kind of left with having to do these like weird structures where they're like guessing what a security looks like, but nobody has ever told them. So they, they do these things like like you were saying, like not give their, their investors proper ownership because it looks like a security and doing these things like, oh, like maybe it, it's attached to future revenue, but not really. And it just like leaves everyone um, unprotected. So I don't know, like the outlook is, I, I don't know if you agree, it's, it's a bit kind of bleak because like, it, it seems like there's like no way forward. Like nobody is kind of giving any guidance that, that we might ever come out of this situation, at mm-hmm. least in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, one answer might be that like places other than the U.S. might be, might actually be kind of easier to influence and and like easier to suggest uh, and like actually try approaches that manage to be better for everyone. And so mm-hmm. the only way to convince is through a successful demonstration. Like that mm-hmm. might actually be one of the answers, right? And like I guess, you know, given that you know, I think like both of us have like substantial outside the U.S. backgrounds, um, we're definitely in a yeah. Like a better position to kind of look at the, those options than like a lot of those people, like a lot, like mm. like a lot of the loudest voices in crypto are people who have basically spent their entire lives in the U.S. and don't really think much about like anything outside of it. Yeah, mm. that's so that's one option. Um, and other, I mean the other like base if either you convince through through um like words or you convince through demonstrations and uh, or, or demonstration, uh, mm. I guess, but. The way that you would convince through through words that would actually work, I think, at this point is like basically suggesting some new alternative that like enough people find reasonable enough that it uh, succeeds and it kind of moves the needle forward. And like mm-hmm. it, do- it also doesn't have to be a federal level thing. Like maybe there is something that could be done at a state level. Like I think, uh, you no, know, as I mentioned, the way that uh, Wyoming had created that uh, the Dow law, I think, uh, like it is something that. Like as far as I can tell, I don't think it has enabled any bad stuff that would not have existed otherwise. But it has enabled like plenty of meaningful stuff, right? Yeah. And like you know, as I mentioned, like City Dale being a yeah, good, a good example of this. And I feel like there is definitely going to be should be lots of uh, other examples like that. And so maybe this is just a problem that we need kind of more minds uh, to be yeah, f- focusing on and looking into. 
Yeah. Okay, so I recorded interviews with other guests recently that I wanted to hear your opinions on uh, some of the arguments they made. Arguments mm. that are somewhat kind of against how Ethereum is is doing things. So one of these guests was um, Emin Gunn Sirar of Avalanche. And he had this like very incendiary argument that saying that any layer one blockchain that relies on layer two scaling solutions has given up. Like his argument is that relying on layer twos drastically mm. reduces security, incre increases complexity. And he argues that blockchain blockchains should be able to scale from kind of their base, like their core mainnet layer. I mean, to me, that sounds like uh, like any country that relies on companies to provide any of people's basic needs has given up, right? <laughs> like that's uh, you know, like that's like to, to us, that's a statement that sounds obviously real realistic. I mean, obviously, there's a few communists that probably that probably believe it very sincerely, but like we see how it's like not you know true, right? And mm. that's. Like layer two scaling, like you know, layer twos are part of the yeah, greater ecosystem of uh, a layer one, and I think uh, you know, like a layer one that is like ecosystems being symbiotic with other ecosystems is, I think, uh, well, we don't even, I think, even saying other other ecosystems concedes too much, right? Like I think, uh, you know, the Arbitrum ecosystem is part of the Ethereum ecosystem. The yeah, like Starknet ecosystem is part of the Ethereum ecosystem. The Optimism ecosystem is part of the Ethereum ecosystem, and same with the uh, mm -hmm. you know the Loopring ecosystem and uh, Polygon, right? Mm -hmm. But look, I think uh, there's there's nothing wrong with uh, relying on this kind of like beneficial interaction between kind of, like different parts and the whole. And I even think that there is important benefits that can come from it, right? Like I like for example, you know, the Ethereum Foundation historically is. Uh, like business development is totally not one of its strengths. And, you know, you could argue that like part of it is a, a, a genuine desire to maintain, you know, neutrality and purity and other kind of important things. But part of it probably also just is like us not having certain kinds of talent. But like, for example, Polygon, like, you know, they do actually have business development and they have been pretty, um, pretty successful recently at that, right? And like, you know, there, it's not just them. There's uh, plenty of uh, other layer two projects as well. So I think uh, there's, you know, nothing wrong with uh, scaling through layer twos. Um, layer twos are like we need to stop looking at chains as chains, and we need to start looking at them as ecosystems. And different parts of an ecosystem uh, definitely can provide kind of important uh, tools and uh, co and and complement each other really well. And I think like that's you know perfectly healthy and per and uh, perfectly fine. And do you think that? that's a kind of secure way to to move forward and to build i mean there's like that there's no technical reason that makes anything about layer two is not secure right hmm. like technically yeah like the logic for how they work like whether it's uh, roll-ups or even whether it's the lightning network like that that stuff's been understood and like around for many years hmm. so i uh, yeah yeah, I mean, I don't, like I don't, I don't really see safety risks from the layer twos uh, scaling that don't exist in layer one scaling. I actually think like layer two scaling is better for um, experimentation uh, because you can roll out different approaches to scaling in parallel, and uh, you know you don't really need to put your all of your eggs into one basket to the same extent. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think that's an issue. Okay, I guess like maybe like usability, like UX UI is the issue at the moment, mm -hmm. right? 
with layer two? Yeah, I think that's a real issue. Um, I think uh, there's definitely more that we can do to improve it. Like I think there's more that we can do to improve people's ability to say move assets between different layer twos. Mm-hmm. Um, like between, you know, there's more that we can do to improve people's ability to kind of move between the different layer twos um, safely. Like I think. Uh, there's a big difference between, like, say, being on Loopring or Arbitrum and uh, being on Avalanche, right? Like, uh, Avalanche is a, yes, like, you're bridging into a separate layer one. And uh, right. whereas with Arbitrum, you're, like, basically, you're moving onto a platform that actually is secured by the yeah, underlying blockchain. And, mm-hmm. like, right now, MetaMask and, like, the other browsers don't really make a good job of making that distinction clear to users. And I think it's important to make that distinction clear to users. Like there's a lot, there's definitely a lot more of uh, kind of usability work that can be done both on like just plain old, like just regular like usability of the ecosystem and make it easier for people to like just understand the concept of hopping between chains and like what happens when they hop between chains, but also like the, the usability of security. and making it clearer to users like what's going on and like in what cases are they actually safe and in what cases are they not safe Um, but like these are all things that lots of people are working on yeah okay so this is very very much related to a post you recently wrote on you said the future will be multi-chain but not uh, cross-chain so you said that there are fundamental security limits to bridges between chains. While, as you were explaining right now, you don't think there's kind of security compromises on on moving between Ethereum and, and layer twos, but there is on moving between Ethereum and, and other chains. And I guess like you were proven right recently with the hack to the wormhole bridge. Like that happened like very kind of a few days after you you uh, you posted that. So it was like, oh, Vitalik was right. But it, it, it really does make sense. It makes sense that it's a lot riskier to live in this uh, cross-chain, in this kind of multi-chain world. But if that's the case, and, and the future is living in kind of this uh, in layer ones and there are layer two scalable, scalability solutions, and maybe there are, there are different communities using different blockchains, doesn't that just lose, don't we lose out on kind of this key feature of blockchain and crypto that's uh, composability? And wouldn't we go back to like, just like another set of walled gardens? I mean, I, I do think that like, even if we get yeah, like, even like, I think bridges will, will continue to exist. Uh, I mean, I just uh, like, as I, as I think I mentioned in my post, I kind of one of the, like, the, one of the, conclusions of like at least this thinking is that there's this kind of anti-network effect to bridge security where bridges become less safe if lots of people are using them but that also means that there's that they're that they become very safe if not that many people are using them so there will be still some use of them there are all even if there aren't any bridges there will still be decentralized exchanges right so it's not like you know you're not going to be able to like move there's these walled gardens and you can't move things between them at all like you will be able to have your Solana coins on Solana and then you'll be able to decentralize that trade them into Ether on Ethereum or uh, and then trade that into like Bitcoin on the yeah, Bitcoin network. And the tools for doing that are getting more efficient and I think they'll only get, they're only continuing to get more efficient. And so you know, there, it definitely still will continue to be possible to kind of be someone who is the, a, a yeah, multi-blockchain hopping person where 
you have to do some of your stuff on some ecosystem and some of your and other things on other ecosystems and you just kind of hop between them uh, to as you need to like the only thing that would uh, that we would not see much of is like ethereum native assets being on applications on uh, solana or um or vice versa but like i don't even necessarily think that we need to right well like if your application uses Ethereum native assets, then like it can be on Ethereum. And if your application uses a lot of native assets, they can be on Solana. And if people want to like borrow both, then they can just like use the like an application that does both on um both on both sides. And like I think that's uh, like the law, like that kind the the amount that we lose from that kind of interoperability, I think, like versus um you know like maximum interoperability where every asset can just be temp- be yeah, teleported everywhere is uh, not actually that high. And the yeah, like the reduction in kind of tail risk and kind of systemic risk of the uh, of uh, to the ecosystem is um, I think definitely pretty significant. Yeah, so like I think. One way to think about the analogy would be like one way to do a yeah, walled garden would be for, you know, if you take Twitter and Facebook and then, you know, you make it possible for people like people to have pieces of content that like points to pieces of content that were created by um, other platforms. But then another kind of interoperability might be like, what if uh, like, Facebook uh, gains the ability to, like, have an API call where it can just make retweets, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, you can see how, like, that second second one is, like, more dangerous than the first, right? And I think, Mm -hmm. like, in the case of cryptocurrency, like, it's, uh, like, once you actually move, like, there's a difference between messages and assets, and once you start moving assets over, then, like, you get this kind of higher level of uh, trust that uh, doesn't, uh, like, that you would otherwise not be getting, but... So okay, I guess. Sorry, I I just realized that this is this kind of really complicated and just fun technical rabbit hole. As, uh, <laughs> no, lots, of, lots of see, lots of things in crypto are these like technical yeah. rabbit holes where like you know they're not like it isn't uh, easy to make like one single t- like conclusion where we can say like yay one word and boo another word. It's like oh you yeah. know it really depends on the case and like you will still be able to. Uh, like to interoperate and it'll look like you can interoperate in a lot of ways, but like just this one particular thing of uh, jump of like jumping assets around is uh, something that is uh, just always going to have this inevitable ri- inevitable risk premium attached. Is mm. I guess the conclusion. Right. Yeah, makes sense. And and maybe some people will be willing to pay for that risk or you know take mm-hmm. that risk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some believe that if we were to reshape the financial system. The most sensible blockchain to build on is Bitcoin, as it is the most secure and decentralized, and that building on top of Ethereum implies using an unreliable foundation. Others say that relying on layer 2 scaling solutions opens the door to unnecessary risks and usability challenges. Vitalik takes on this criticism and explains why he believes Ethereum's design is a sustainable way forward. In this section, we also discuss the trade-offs in a multi-chain future, cancel culture permeating into the Ethereum community, and Vitalik comments on what makes him defiant. ET is a DeFi protocol that empowers other crypto projects like OneInch, Uniswap, Shapeshift, Filecoin, Fuse Network, Dodo, and others with community-controlled DeFi capabilities. Thanks to ET's groundbreaking DeFi 2.0 protocols, Crypto projects can finally keep revenue from stablecoins and liquidity programs. 
ET enables crypto projects to create a sustainable economy that attracts users and keeps value locked in their communities. Learn more at ET.org. I guess I have two ways of replying to that. Like one is like a little bit more trolly and the other one is meaningful. I'll start with the trolly one. The trolly one is that this year Ethereum is uh, switching to proof of stake and uh, proof of stake is better and more secure than proof of work. And so after the merge, Ethereum will actually be the most secure base layer. It's trolly because Bitcoiners are going to just like, yell and scream and totally disagree with this. But like, you know, it is my belief. And I've like written big, long pieces about, uh, um, about why in a whole bunch of places. The other and more meaningful answer that I think kind of gets at some interesting differences is that this gets to a post that I wrote a couple of years ago called Base Layers and Functionality Escape Velocity. It's uh, like if you just go to uh, Vitalik.ca and you just control F for escape velocity, you should be able to find it. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the core idea basically is that like it's not enough for a base layer to be decentralized. The base layer also needs to have like the ability to build things on top of it without like adding um, extra centralization in the middle, right? I guess one possible analogy for this would be, imagine if you had a country where that country followed like very kind of like libertarian rules about kind of, like of about kind of political mor- morality right very strong property rights you know, it's like very like if you have a piece of property you can do whatever you want on top of it but a piece of property is indivisible and um, the only like property lots that exist are property lots that are the size of a city right so like the only plots of lands that currently exist and like have property rights attached are the size of like 10 by 10 square kilometers and like you can't split them up. The only thing that you can do is like you can make legal contracts that would get that that might you know get, would get enforced by a court system. But like even there, people might get bankrupt and weird, and weird things could happen. So in that kind of world, like the it looks like the the base lawyer perfectly respects property rights, right? And it looks like the base lawyer like does everything that someone who cares about that sort of thing would really want. But because the base layer only like deals with property in these kind of like institutionally large chunks from the point of view of of a person experiencing living inside of this country they might not actually experience that much freedom right mm-hmm. and the reason why they might not actually experience that much freedom is because if they want to actually live they would have to live inside of like basically one of like possibly a few thousand private cities and you know those private cities might have like whatever whatever rules that they have and like you know possibly like if there's this like if the underlying culture is fairly authoritarian and if there's like this if the culture is fairly conformist or whatever then like it's possible that all of these uh, cities are actually going to be like fairly crappy and not do a good job of respecting people's rights right so kind mm-hmm. of like the moral is that like you know even if your base layer is decentralized because in this particular case like it doesn't have the enough functionality in this case which would be like allowing people to like actually own pro- like you know like their own property and not just like basically have relationships with people that own like these bi- these incredibly big city sized chunks of land like because it doesn't have the functionality well it turns out that like the experienced level of kind of like freedom and sovereignty and whatever you want to you whatever you want to call it living in this country is actually not very high right? right so i think with bitcoin it's kind of similar in that like the bitcoin base chain does not support the uh, like complicated scripting, right? So like it doesn't support what we call rich statefulness. And because of that, 
it's not possible to create a rollup on top of Bitcoin, right? The only scaling solution that it can support is the Lightning Network. You can't create a rollup on top of Bitcoin. You can't create a plasma chain on top of Bitcoin. You cannot create complicated smart contracts on top of Bitcoin. So if, like, for example, we want to, like, let's say you take the Ethereum Foundation multisig, right? The way the Ethereum Foundation multisig works is that there are seven participants and you need four out of seven to move large amounts of money, but any one out of seven can withdraw small amounts of money up to a maximum of a certain amount every day. And the problem is that like this up to a certain amount every day thing, that's not like a feature that the, like doing that requires being able to remember that like, oh, you already made a transaction and you already made a transaction of this size. That's not something that the Bitcoin scripting like language is really able to like process, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you want to build that kind of design on top of Bitcoin, you have to build it on top of a system that exists on top of Bitcoin, but then that system actually has to add its own trust assumption, right? right. So like if you take Liquid, for example, right? Like Liquid is a multisig. Like it basically is a permissions consortium blockchain, like, but you know, it's it's run by like permissioned people that the Bitcoin community trusts. And so like it doesn't get lumped into the same category as like what some of the yeah, you know what some of the banks are doing, right? But is is Rootstock the same? Is, I think in its current form, yes. I believe their long-term vision is that they actually want Bitcoin miners to be able to kind of enforce the connection between uh, Bitcoin and Rootstock. But like, I actually haven't checked Rootstock in a while. So like, if you get a Rootstock person on, on and they, you know, we, we would be happy to be corrected by them, right? Mm -hmm. okay. But like, if they can get miners to agree on like enough things to make the like Rootstock what i would call trustless then mm -hmm. like they've basically turned look they would have essentially turned bitcoin into something very different from from uh, what bitcoin is today right like right. that basically is like doing a soft fork so that which like is would be an interesting way of upgrading bitcoin right but we have to call mm -hmm. it what it is which is like it's upgrading bitcoin and like right. if you upgrade bitcoin then you know of course like you you can get give it um like functionality escape velocity right so mm -hmm. i guess uh Bitcoin in its current form, right? Like it doesn't have functionality escape velocity. It definitely, and it definitely does have a lot of genuine decentralization that plenty of chains really don't have, but it doesn't have this other thing. And so, but because it doesn't have like this functionality escape velocity, because it doesn't have enough functionality to be able to kind of build whatever like layer two you want to do whatever, you, whatever what the layer one doesn't on top, like the, the level of like self sovereignty experienced by users. It ends up being like like kind of heavily mediated and much less than like the yeah, the level that's kind of offered by the chain in theory. And like if Bitcoin wants to fit, well, like wants to improve on that, then it has to add functionality. And like I do know that there are some people that wants to do that, which I think is good. But like that's I guess the situation where it is today. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's interesting because like they're building on top of Bitcoin because of like all these different features, but like self sovereignty, these transition features. But to do that, they, they need to build actually on top of layer twos and they are giving away those features when, when they do that. So, okay, before we run out of time, I wanted to get your thoughts on the kind of the, the latest Ethereum crypto Twitter drama or controversy, mm -hmm. I should say, which is happened around when there have been different tweets or statements or comments that people have made in the past that were racist or misogynistic or, you know, just stuff that other people in the Ethereum community disagreed with. 
And so those statements have been met with those uh, people who made them getting fired or removed from their roles and so on. So basically cancel culture coming to Ethereum. There was, I mean, probably the most notable case happened with someone from ENS, which uh, you've mentioned someone, uh, something he said on uh, in 2016 about, he said, homosexual acts are evil, transgenderism doesn't exist, abortion is murder, contraception is perversion. I mean, all this stuff that goes against a lot of the values of, I, I think, like, many of uh, people mm-hmm. many people in the ethereum community and so he lost his role uh, because of saying that it's very i think it's a very kind of tough issue i mean i'm 100 percent kind of like a free speech advocate i would want everyone to have the right to say whatever uh, without kind of fear of retaliation but at the same time i also see the point of people who say you know uh, these are public figures they are building for a community that is that is that wants to be inclusive uh, and they're saying things against many members of their communities and you know they're they they're feeling hurt and so on and they, they're not kind of good representatives of uh, of ethereum or like of, of, of the apps that they're working with so where do you stand uh, on this? Yeah, I guess like I I definitely have some like different kinds of complicated and uh, nuanced um, opinions on this. Mm-hmm. I guess like one of them is um that I think like Brantley's uh, kind of like failing over these over this last week was definitely not just kind of like having opinions that lots of people disagree with, right? Like I think like his other big failing was that like when the whole drama happened, like he responded by like first um having this Twitter space where he like, like, didn't just double down on the opinions, but double down on them in this kind of very ham-fisted way that, mm-hmm. like, a lot of kind of hiding behind, like, you know, my religion tells me to believe this, so I believe this, um, and in a way that, like, do- didn't really make people feel like he kind of, like, understood or, en- um, or engaged with the yeah, opposing perspectives, and ultimately... Like you know, he is a like he is a major delegate. He is a yeah, representative of of a company. He is like a, also a delegate within the ENS DAO. And mm-hmm. when you have a political role, then like it is part of your job to be able to handle controversies well, right? So like I don't think you can even claim that like oh it's uh, you know he got kicked out because of something that's like not not relevant to him being able to do his job well. Like I think in, in some ways it is relevant, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like one nuanced point, I guess. Another nuanced uh, point would be that one thing that often gets lost here is that uh, there's there is this kind of U.S. centric like aspect to the culture that unfortunately gets played up like, every time things like this happen, right? And mm-hmm. like if you follow these uh, kind of recent uh, deplatforming debates closely, one of the things that you find is that. The people who are the most strongly against the yeah, deplatformings are often foreigners and are often like even foreign dissidents that are kind of escaping from cancel cultures that are much more uh, kind of like sh- shall we say yeah intense than uh, even mm-hmm. like things that the U.S. has right. So like um, Alexei yeah, Navalny, the yeah, Russian uh, dissident who has um, you know unfortunately been uh, languishing in uh, prison for the last uh, year or so. He was one of the strongest opponents of uh, Donald Trump uh, being uh, kicked out of Twitter about a year ago, right? Because, like, the like ultimately, yeah, the like precedents do matter, and when you do something, you are legitimizing that, like, that action being done in general, including that action being done in the long term 
often by other people who you don't like and, and you can't control. And mm. like if that that is something that uh, I think people do need to be uh, constantly have their attention to and be and that uh, kind of also be concerned about. And like just from like my own like personal observation, like there's definitely like I've seen like there were Latin I've seen Latin American Ethereum community members, there were Chinese Ethereum community members that had like definitely de- definitely not like knee jerk hostile um, perspectives to what happens, but definitely perspectives of like you know oof like you know we need to be careful uh, careful about this and that's uh, so I think it's like when things like this are done, it's. Uh, important that they are done in a way that kind of clearly signals like what actually is being done like what are the values behind what's being done and like for example why this doesn't set a precedent that like say for example in the future someone might be did not like like the ens dao might like make a a uh, protocol change that would like take away the dot eth name of someone that they decide like has bad opinions right like mm. that's clearly something that i think like like nobody wants or very few people want ENS to go in that direction. Um, you know, like I certainly don't want ENS to go in that direction, but like mm-hmm. that needs to be like it needs to be clearly communicated for why you know why like well what was done this week is not the first uh, stepping stone to doing something like that. Like and like I believe that can be clearly communicated, but it has to be. So that's mm-hmm. I guess nuance to pay in number two. Nuance to pay number three is like I personally favor at least having fourteen day cooldowns before anyone is fired because of a scandal. Like, I personally would love it if that was, like, a general social rule that everyone had. I mean, numbers even higher than 14 would be even better. And, like, you know, yes, that does mean that, you know, there's going to be people that are very uncomfortable that will just have to sit on their discomfort for a while. Um, But at the same time, I think, uh, like, sitting on the discomfort and uh, not making knee-jerk decisions is uh, something that's very healthy. And that's, it's something that, like, like it it is a muscle that we, uh, that we need to exercise and i think that is something that would also be better at like clearly communicating to the community that what was done was the result of a like a well-considered deliberation and not like oh you know the cultural revolution is coming to ethereum now or whatever Mm -hmm. so nuanced opinion number four is that i think uh like if you're one of the beauties of the Ethereum community is that it is this kind of diverse and it has these and it has different sub communities and Ethereum is not any one of the any one of its sub communities right and like people who get uh, and so I think that does give permission to for sub communities to be more opinionated and like there have been people that have been kind of you know quote canceled from some Ethereum sub communities that do continue to prosper in other Ethereum sub communities right so like. I mean, mm-hmm. might be one uh, good example of that, right? Like, there's plenty of kind of, you know, woke and social justice leaning people that uh, have various reasons to dislike him. But at the same time, you know, he's got Rai, he's, you know, there's uh, the Money God and uh, Moloch mm-hmm. now and all of these projects. And, like, you know, there's plenty of people who are happy with uh, him being him and he you know, like, uh, continues to prosper in that way. So I think it's uh, it's important to not kind of over-catastrophize and over-interpret an Ethereum sub-community acting in a particular way as like, oh, you know, these are the values of Ethereum now. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, like, Ethereum is big and Ethereum values are big. And I don't think, like, either myself or any Ethereum sub-community, like, really have the right to define what all of Ethereum stands for. And that's, uh, like, I think it's healthy that that, that that is the case. But also it does, 
like kind of on the other hand mean that you know we should we should be careful about like, we should be careful to kind of protect the ethereum base layer from f- falling into some into controversies like this right so like for example sometimes people argue in favor of uh you know should the idea that like you know should we print more eth in order to like fund you know some base layer public goods at the protocol layer and like this is actually one good argument against right like do we really want um you know the uh, entire ethereum community ending up like making decisions uh, like basically being forced to create this kind of big collective social signal that like ethereum stands in one direction or another direction on just like some issue that ends up being like totally globally controversial right like i think uh, a lot of people do come to ethereum as a like as a refuge from like whatever like their local political issues are and like the world is a big place and there's plenty of cases in which seeking a refuge from your local political issues is like a totally legitimate thing that uh, should that like should totally not be denigrated and like ethereum turning into a reflection uh, like just a reflection of like not even just the world but like even you know this one very particular slice of the world that cares about like some particular issues and uh, and, and not other issues is definitely something that could also limit its potential so yeah i mean i don't know like i'm uh, this is uh, unfortunate you know no i'm not going to kind of wave the you know free uh, brantley flag or the yeah kind of like uh, get uh, get rid of brantley or the let's go brantley or whatever flags like i'm uh, i'm not so much uh, unfortunately just uh, you know complicated perspectives because this is this whole thing is a complicated space yeah no i agree it's a topic that's so you know that needs to be treated with with nuance i don't think there is like one straightforward answer to it I, I hate that uh, that we are kind of running out of time. I had so many more questions, and I actually have to get on a Twitter space with your mom now about <laughs> medias. So I don't want to keep her waiting. Mm-hmm. I guess like just like one quick final question to to wrap this up, if you can. So I've been asking each guest what makes them defiant in line with the show's name. So what makes you defiant? That's a good question. I mean, I feel like I defy lots of things. I mean, I uh, mm-hmm. I defy coin voting governance. I defy a lot, a lot of people's desires to take, um, you know, very short-term actions that push the crypto space in uh, a, uh, a direction that looks nice in the short term, but isn't really sustainable. What, what, what else have I... Uh, have I defied recently? I guess I uh, I defied Avalanche on Twitter yesterday. That was uh, definitely defying. See, this is the other thing, right? Like, I feel like I don't really, like, I don't kind of stand for one radical thing as much as I just try to, like, mm-hmm. I, you know, think about different issues and, like, whatever my mm-hmm. opinion, whatever my perspective is, like, that's, my, that's what my perspective is. And it's almost like the more that you can't predict someone's um, opinions from their other opinions, the more, like the more valuable the, the, those opinions are. So I definitely kind of like, like try hard to actually like think about things separately and uh, not let any of people's uh, exi- um, existing boxes guide me. So, yeah, I mean, I feel the, you know, you're not going to get one thing, but uh, you are going to get a, uh, a very long list. And if you want to find out what that long list is, then, you know, I've, uh, written and uh, twittered a bunch of stuff for a while and i probably will keep doing that yes please do (laughs) they're they're the best okay vitalik it was so great chatting i wish we had more time hopefully you'll be back on the defiant podcast at at some other time and we can continue this conversation Uh, 
really a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Such interesting takes on everything. So again, I appreciate you taking the time and thank you so much. And yeah, thank see you, you too. Soon. This has been great. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Podcast. Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.